You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Pray with me. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, Father in heaven, we come, in light of Paul's words there in Romans 12, we as your people do not want to be conformed to the pattern of this world. Father, we want to be transformed. We want our minds to be renewed. We want that to happen through hearing your word. You have not left us without a guide. You've not left us without your truth. You have given us the book. And so, Father, we want to know your will. We want to discern it. We want to see it in all its goodness and that it is acceptable and that it is perfect as we live it out before you. And so, Father, would you grant us a grace in these moments of listening and of obedience and of embracing the beauty and goodness of your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is the most controversial passage in First Timothy. It's one of the most controversial passages in all of Paul and the New Testament. And in the 21st century, all the Bible. It has not always been controversial. That's a recent phenomenon in the history of the church. And controversial does not necessarily mean unclear. This passage is not too difficult to understand. Our problems come in with application, especially when we believe that the Bible is God's words to us. If it's not God's word, the problems disappear. We just say, times have changed. But Christians in general, and specifically here at Cities Church, believe that this is an enduring word to us from the risen Christ through his inspired spokesman, the Apostle Paul. And so we take this passage with all of Scripture, with utter seriousness. But that doesn't mean the application's easy. Multiple aspects of the verses John just read are an affront to modern secular thinking. So this morning, I don't want us to be, I don't want to shy away in any way from the discomfort you may feel on some of these aspects. But for clarity's sake, I do want to start up front and say a few things that this passage does not teach. This passage does not teach that women today must not braid their hair, wear gold or pearls. This passage does not teach that women must stay silent once they enter the doors of the church. This passage does not teach that women may not teach at all. This passage does not teach that all men are fit to teach in the gathered assembly of the church. This This passage does not teach that all men have authority over all women. This passage does not teach that salvation is by works, childbearing, rather than through faith. I'll try to help explain those various things from the text. What makes this passage difficult in terms of application today is not just modern notions of equality in women, but sinful notions 
of selfishness and laziness in men. This passage begins with a direct word in verse 8 to the men. And then the other seven verses are more about women. So let me start with a direct challenge to the men here at the beginning. Brothers, you know that in some conservative circles, this passage is more often misused by men than by women. We assume that because God designed men to be husbands in the home and elders in the church, that that means added privilege without added responsibility and added sacrifice. So brothers, who consider yourselves well-versed in the distinctive callings of men and women, make sure that your so-called knowledge does not become an excuse for your selfishness and your laziness, but that you feel the weight of being who Christ is to his church. Mature men keep Ephesians 5.23 and Ephesians 5.25 together. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Jesus is head, which does not mean that he claimed selfish privilege, but that he sacrificed himself for the good of his bride. And we've said here as we've gone through 1 Timothy that what Paul is doing is best summed up for the whole letter here in chapter 3, verse 15. So he writes to Timothy, to the whole Ephesian church, and to us today, and he's, and he's writing to say how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, 1 Timothy 3, 15. There are implications in this passage this morning especially as Paul connects it to Genesis 2 and 3, that extend beyond the home and the family into wider life. However, remember, in this passage in particular, Paul is talking about the gathered church, how one ought to behave in the household of God. And in particular, the worship gathering, which we're in right now, the worship gathering is in view here. And so without shying away from any of Paul's prohibitions, in the passage here, which would be easy for us just to focus on the prohibitions, I want to highlight for you four positive charges. That's how we're going to work our way through the text. Four positive charges that I don't want you to miss as the negatives are ringing in your modern ears. So number one, let the men pray. This is verse 8. Let the men pray. Look at verse 8. I desire that in every place the men should pray. Lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. One thing we're going to see throughout this passage is that Paul deals with men as men and with women as women. He's not afraid to acknowledge on the one hand and then to challenge the distinctives and the characteristic between men and women, especially related to sin. God designed men and women with glorious differences, which are sin in us produces different tendencies to disorder. So in verses 9 to 10, for women, it's improper attention to physical appearance. And in verse 8, for men, it's improper anger and quarreling. And just because Paul calls out these differences, don't assume here that anger and quarreling are only male issues or that improper attention to appearance is only a female issue, but there are characteristic 
differences here based on God's design in nature. So here for men, in verse 8, is the positive attribute of strength. And then there's the attendant dangers of improper anger and quarreling. Paul wants men to pray, he says, lifting holy hands. As you may know, hands have a significance throughout the Bible. They're an image for strength. Over and over again, God says that he delivered his people Israel with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. And so Paul challenges men at their point of strength, at their glory. The glory of a young man is his strength, Proverbs 20, 29. Paul challenges men at that point to be holy. That their prayers, which in this context, first and foremost is the context of worship and then beyond, come with hands that are lifted in glad submission to God. All Christians, all men, all elders are men under authority, the authority of the risen Christ. And as Paul challenges us on those two specific points, these are two typical male weaknesses, anger and quarreling. Or you may call it, call it bickering is another word for, for quarreling here. It's, it's improper fighting when it need not happen. Picking the wrong fights. God made men to feel a kind of holy jealousy to guard and protect their families and their communities and their churches. And what sin does is take that good impulse and turns it from holy jealousy into sinful anger. God made men to be fighters, to be holy warriors who fight in the right battles, who ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Psalm 45 verse 4. Sinful anger and unnecessary quarreling are male tendencies to sin given God's design and calling of men. But again here, the positive point is let the men pray. Perhaps because men can be so task and thing and visibly oriented, they need to be reminded all the more, more so than women perhaps, about the power and necessity of prayer. So here God draws attention to a husband's prayers. Let the men pray. It is not enough just to read and study the Bible for yourselves, guys. Let the men pray. It's not enough just to teach the family God's word. Let the men pray. It's not enough just to work hard and make sacrifices of your personal convenience to help the family, serve your wife, love your kids. Let the men pray. So brothers, two challenges. The first, let's not have the sun go down on our anger. Don't try to bury or ignore your anger that rises in you, however strong or subtle the burst. Anger is a response to some love being threatened. And so we should ask ourselves, when anger rises, what love is being threatened in this moment? What was being threatened that made me angry? Most often, if you ask that question, you'll find some disordered love. We have very little righteous anger. There is a category for righteous anger, but we probably have very little of it as sinners. There is often a disordered love to identify, to repent of, to ask for God's help, and to ask that our loves be restored into the proper place. But secondly, brothers, on the calling of prayer, 
we do have a particular calling as men to pray for wife, for family. So husbands, I ask, are, are you covering your wife in prayer? Covering your household in prayer, not just leaning on her to cover your house in prayer? How many marriage and parenting problems would be resolved if men covered their houses, covered their wives, covered their children in serious, daily, action-inspiring prayer? So number one, let the men pray. That's verse eight. Number two, let the women do good. This is verses nine to ten. Look at verses nine to ten. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. All right, ladies, now the next seven verses are about you more explicitly. Verses 12 and 13 have a lot to say to men as well, Uh, but the The subject matter switches here slightly with the Apostle Paul. Having addressed the male tendencies to improper anger and quarreling, Paul now turns to the more feminine tendencies to improper attention to and intention with physical appearance. Just as men are strong and need a related warning to anger and quarreling, women are beautiful and need a related warning to show, and to superficiality. And there is a word here in verse 9 that I think would be really helpful in all our modesty discussions. Maybe you've been part of these Christian modesty discussions in the past. I think the word in verse 9 that's very helpful is the word respectable. This exact word in the Greek only occurs here and then just a breath later in 1 Timothy 3 verse 2 on the elder qualification. So the elders must be respectable. Respectability means that it, you are engendering a certain kind of respect. You're encouraging respect. You're making respect easier for others, not more difficult. And how we adorn ourselves externally in clothing, it relates inevitably to how we talk, how we carry ourselves as well, but you can't get past the clothing part of it. Clothing part of it. How we dress relates to respectability. And it, and it does so related to various uh, conventions in our culture and in our society. Whether dress is respectable or not. Whether it engenders respect from others or undermines respect from others. And God means for his people, beginning with his leaders and the whole church... To be the kind of people who seek to make respect easier for others, not more difficult for others. It is at least juvenile, if not self-absorbed, to attempt to draw special attention, whether positively or negatively, to ourselves by the way we dress. Love and maturity lead us to consider others from a heart that's full, not an empty heart. To try within reason to put others at ease rather than to shock them or offend them or distract them or unrighteously entice them. So our our conversations on modesty today, as you know, often turn on how much skin is visible and how tight clothing is. Paul Paul mentions neither one of those in 1 Timothy 2. The cultural situation is different. His emphasis here is on undue cost and on undue attention 
to our dress, trying to solicit undue attention from others. And that still very much applies today. If you can imagine the first century, they didn't have social media to put themselves on display on Instagram all the time. They had one hour a week in the public gathering. And so this would be the time to show your quality to others in a public setting. The, the, the things have changed today. There is, there is probably a warning consideration here for us with how we use our other attempts at ostentation throughout the week. What about here these specifics of braided hair, gold jewelry, pearls? Paul says, not with hair braided or gold or pearl or costly attire. Paul's appeal here is not to nature. He's not appealing to a timeless principle that pearls are always wrong. That gold never wear gold. That that's always wrong. Rather, this is a certain cultural situation in which braided hair, gold, and pearls are giving a kind of are are giving a kind of ostentation, a showish, a showiness, as well as perhaps a message of seduction. Giving undue time to dress and money to dress and using beauty to distract and control men as well as try to cultivate envy in other women. This is not the kind of setting that Paul wants in the church gathering. 1 Peter 3 has some very similar warnings. 1 Peter 3 verses 1 to 6. And according to one scholar, in both Jewish and Greco-Roman literature, sexual seductiveness is linked with extravagant adornment. There is an aspect here of that to consider. But the principle that Paul is getting at is the surprising turn at the end of verse 10. It's it's amazing how verse 10 ends. Paul doesn't comment then on the to-do list for how women should dress. He warns of of some particular flashpoints in that culture of what not to do, but he ends with the focus on good works. You want to turn heads? Focus not on good looks, but on good works, the Apostle Paul says. The positive point is to do good. Don't be so focused on yourself and on having yourself done up that you're not able to see the needs of others and meet the needs of others with good works. That's the meaning of good works, helping others in true need. So Paul's call is to make Jesus look good through good works rather than looking good ourselves through excess energy and attention given to external adornment. Word for the ladies. The risen Christ through the Apostle Paul is not just telling you to blend in. Don't hear that here. He is saying to give your attention to blessing others in need, not to drawing attention to yourselves. So in the words of Matthew 5, 17, let your light so shine before others. Not blend in. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. But how's this going to happen? Does Paul just expect women to up and do good? What's, what's Paul's plan for men, women, all in the church to do good works? And that's very clear throughout 1 Timothy. This is one of our key themes we've seen in 1 Timothy, that sound doctrine produces sound living. God's good news, through faithful teaching, produces good Christian godly lives. So doing good begins with learning truth. And continuing to do good 
continues through continuing to learn truth. So not only should the men pray, and not only should the women do good, but third, Paul says, let the women learn. This is number three. Let the women learn. Look at verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now before we talk about quietly and all submissiveness, which we will, I don't want you to miss how countercultural this is in the first century. When Paul says, let the women learn. Other traditions in the first century, including within Judaism, often would prohibit or forbid women to learn. Coming to the gathering with men to learn. It was shocking in Luke 10 when Mary sat at Jesus' feet learning rather than doing the women's work with her sister Martha who was serving the group. And how did Jesus respond to it? He did not say, get to work, Mary. He said, she has done a good thing. He commends her. She has, Luke 10, 42, Mary has chosen the good portion. He commends her learning. Christianity is the original and the true women's live movement. However, let's be clear, the main effect on this verse is not that women learn, but how. Paul's going after the manner here, especially in corporate worship. So we have this term quietly. Some translations have it as silently. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? What does he mean here by quietly? What does Paul have in mind? Well, the same word is in verse 2. If you're right there in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the same word's in verse 2. He's talking to all Christians when he says he wants them to live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So here, quiet is not about decibel level. It's about disorder. He wants Christians not to go around wrecking the order of society by the way that they live. Be part of the society. Live in peace. Peace and quiet. We have the same expression in English today, peace and quiet, because these two timelessly go together. Paul does a similar thing in 2 Thessalonians 3.12. He talks to Christians who were lazy and not working, and they were disturbing the peace, and he wants them to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Same meaning here. Then at the end of Acts 21, this is really significant because it's a public speech context. End of Acts 21, beginning of Acts 22, Paul motions from the steps to the crowd that he's about to speak. And Luke reports, there was a great hush. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. That's Acts 21, 40 to 22, verse 2. This is a kind of peace and quiet that enables people to listen to public speech. Especially in the first century when there's no amplification. If there's a little bit of disorder in this room, babies crying or some kind of distraction, I can talk louder on the public speaker here at the amplification. You didn't have that in the first century. To hear teaching, to receive teaching, to learn, there had to be a kind of peace and quiet in the room. And Paul wants women to be able to learn without that distraction. Whether they're creating the distraction or whether men are creating that distraction for them. He wants the women to learn in peace and quiet without distraction. And with all submissiveness. This is first and foremost for all Christians. Men and women included. 
submissiveness to God in the risen Christ. And then, under God, appropriate submissiveness to the leaders, to the teachers, to the order of the church. So the men should pray. The women should do good, including dressing respectably. The women should learn. But who's doing the teaching? This is number four. Number four, let the elders teach. This is verse 12. Look at verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, I said let the elders teach. And maybe you're thinking, I don't see any elders there. Verse 12, and I have an ESV. (laughs) I don't see any elders. What we're going to see next Sunday is immediately where Paul goes after this passage. It's chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Elders are overseers are pastors in the New Testament. These are three different titles for the same teaching office and leading office in the church. And so Paul's going to answer that right there. That's where we're going next week. Pastor Joe will walk us through chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. We'll start talking about elders next week. These two go together. So there's more to say about that next week, but some of it we need to say now because of these two verbs about teaching and exercising authority. And why in the world I would say, let the elders teach. And why I'm not just saying, let the men teach. There's something more specific here to say than just let the men teach. It is let the elders, the pastors, teach. We use pastors and elders synonymously here at City Church. We could use the term overseers as well as we want to, but our our practice has been in English and culturally to use the terms pastors and elders. One thing that makes elders or pastors distinct among the church's two offices of pastor, elder, and deacon is that elders must be able to teach. We'll see that in verse 2 next week. And not only able to teach, elders also must be a kind of managers. That's chapter 3, verse 5. Or leading. Leading is actually a better word, I think, than manage in that context. And that's the pair of verbs here in verse 12. Teaching and exercise authority. Teaching and leading. Elders feed the congregation through teaching. And they lead through governing. So 1 Timothy 5, 17, eventually we'll be there to 1 Timothy 5. And verse 17 says, let the elders who rule or lead well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So how do the elders rule or lead or exercise authority in the church? Through preaching and teaching. And we see that same pair, that teaching, exercising authority pair in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12. Paul says to the church, respect those who labor. I think the reference here is to teaching, to labor in teaching. Respect those who labor among you and are over you. That's oversight, exercising authority, over you in the Lord. Same pair. Labor in teaching, lead through oversight. So elders govern or lead the church. And they do so through the preaching and teaching of the words of Christ in the writings of his apostles and prophets. It really is a remarkable thing who God put in charge under Christ, under the apostles, who God put in charge of the church. Not savvy executives, not successful businessmen, 
But teachers, it's so inefficient. Teachers can be such idealists. But pastors are teachers, Ephesians 4, 11. And throughout the New Testament, it is leaders who teach, and it is teachers who lead. Like in, like in Hebrews 13, 7. In the church, the authority does not lie in the leaders themselves. Their authority is a teaching authority, a stewarding of Jesus' words. So the locus of pastoral authority is in rightly handling the word of truth. That's 2 Timothy 2.15. Jesus, as we say at the end of our services, Jesus is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And Jesus appointed official spokesmen called the apostles. And when they died, they left to us their writings. And pastor teachers exercise authority in the church not by domineering, not by pulling rank, not by claiming personal privilege, but by patiently, persuasively, faithfully, self-sacrificially teaching the apostles' word. Let me just be real clear here. We've said it before. I want to make it very clear. That the elders are charged to teach in the public gathering of the church does not mean that there is no sense in which all Christians should be teachers. When we quote that great commission, we say teaching them to observe all Jesus has commanded. That's not just for the, for the elders. That's for the whole church to teach others all he's commanded. And Hebrews 5.12 he challenges them for not being yet the kind of teachers they should be in their immaturity. In Titus 2, 3 to 4, older women are instructed to teach the younger women. And Timothy, Timothy, who's a letter to, he learned the faith through his mother and his grandmother, 2 Timothy 5, 16. And Colossians 3, 16 says that we teach one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We're not saying women don't teach. But we are saying that elders are charged with the teaching in the gathering of the church. But this is often where the discussions end, right here. The Bible says it for some. Some who believe the Bible say, the Bible says it, I believe it, I don't have a clue why. I don't understand the differences between men and women enough to give a reason for it, but I'll embrace what God says even though I'm not sure why. Now, I do want to commend there's a certain humility and goodness in that. And I think there's more we can say on the why. And that's why Paul doesn't end at verse 12. Verses 13 and 15 are Paul giving us a pointer to the why, embedded in Genesis 2 and 3. And so that's where we want to end. Let me finish up there by going in verses 13 to 15. We're going to see the foundations in Genesis 2 and 3. So look at verse 13 and 14 as well. And there, there's more to say on this. And Joe will have more to say next weekend as we talk about elders further. But I want to say what's here in verses 13 to 15. So look at 13 and 14 first. For Adam was formed first. That four is so important. That gives us the reason. If you've got questions at the end of verse 12, Paul says, I'm going to try and answer here. You follow me? I'm going to try and answer. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So Paul's answer 
to why it is fitting for the church, in the church, for elders who are men to teach is because of God's design in creation. Adam was formed first, then Eve. And it's not just the details of the story that matters if the order was arbitrary, but it's God's design beneath the details. There are four key words here in verses 13 and 14 that have exact correspondence in Genesis 2 and 3. So let me show you those four. I'll explain their significance and we're done. All right? Here are the four words. Formed, then, T-H-E-N, deceived, and childbearing. Those are the four words with exact correspondence back in Genesis 2 and 3. So let me show you those. First is formed. You can turn back. If you'd like to go to Genesis 2 to 3, I would love to have you go there with me if you want to see them for yourselves in those chapters. So first is Genesis 2, 7. God formed the man. Paul lines up his terms with Genesis 2. God formed the man. And then in verses 8 to 14 of Genesis 2, God plants a garden. Then in verse 15, God puts the man in the garden to work it and to keep it. And then in verses 16 and 17 of Genesis 2, this is very significant. God gives the man the moral vision of the garden. Eat of every tree but one. Genesis 2.18 then has our word then. So here's the second word. So first is formed. Then look at 2.18 for then. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Then God made the woman. So as Paul says, Adam was formed first, then Eve. This is God's order in creation. He forms Adam first, and he gives Adam the vision for the garden. Then he forms Eve, and the man is to teach and to lead his wife. This is God's order, which corresponds to his design. It's not if God, as if God created two Similar humans, or same humans, and then just added the male-female accessories. This is not arbitrary. God has design in mind from the beginning. So that's, verses, that's verse 13. That's Genesis chapter 2 is verse 13. Now verse, 13, verse 14 in 1 Timothy 2 is summarizing Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, 1, the serpent approaches the woman. They dialogue. Eve decides to eat the fruit, and she gives to her husband, it is said, who is with her, Genesis 3, 6. And then God comes to confront them because of their transgression, and he comes to Adam. And Adam blames his wife. And then when Eve explains herself to God, she says in verse 13, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. There's the third word, deceived. Deceived here is the uh, is the key verb related to Genesis 3. So God has his order. Man formed first, then woman. And his order is not arbitrary, but intentional. This is the key part of the why I want you to see. It's not arbitrary. It's intentional. It's by design. God made Adam to work and keep the garden. Adam was to guard the garden, to set boundaries. God made Adam strong. And he made him to use that strength to swiftly escort talking snakes off the premises. And if needed, to put his foot through their skull if they wouldn't cooperate. 
But Satan subverted God's order. Instead of going to the man, he approached the woman. He went against God's order, which is the function of God's design. And Adam, this is where things should have stopped. Adam should have stepped forward and said, "Uh uh-uh, don't go against the order. Don't talk to her about the command she didn't hear firsthand, I heard firsthand. Instead, Adam allows it. This is a failure by Adam. He allows it. Eve is deceived, and they fall from paradise when he takes the fruit from his wife as well. And so as Paul, bring it back now to 1 Timothy 2, as Paul seeks to bring the church, to put the church in order in 1 Timothy, he says, remember God's order and design. Don't give way to Satan's subversion and inversion. It is not because women are more gullible than men or that women are less competent than men. It's that God made men for this. God made men for guarding and protecting their households and their country and the church. And he made for a band of qualified men to serve together to guard and protect the doctrine of the church. To take initiative. To put themselves forward for the bullets of criticism. Not push their wives forward for criticism. To press truth with courage into people's lives. To take up the heavy and painful realities of the book like God's wrath and human sin and eternal punishment in hell. To hold up God's truth with forcefulness in preaching. To create categories and to set boundaries for the church. To renounce false teaching. To advocate for women and for their flourishing. And to sacrifice personal comfort and ease to nourish and cherish and protect the church. So there's the first three. Formed, then deceived. And the fourth and final one is childbearing. Look at 1 Timothy 2.15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So after this extended focus on women in verses 9 through 14, Paul ends with a word of hope for women. I know this is confusing to read it and not have the categories in mind, not have Genesis 3 in mind. So let me put Genesis 3 in mind, hopefully make this less confusing so all of us can see this, and especially the women, hear this word of hope from the Apostle Paul in verse 15. Childbearing is the single most obvious, stubborn, striking difference between men and women. Men, we cannot do everything women can. No matter what they told you in the 80s and 90s. You cannot bear children. And that single most obvious difference between men and women is part and parcel of a whole person design down to every single cell, emotionally, psychologically, physically, that makes men and women gloriously different. And so in Genesis 3, because of sin, man and woman are cursed in their characteristic spheres. Adam is cursed in the pain of his labor, working with his hands, working the ground. And Eve is cursed in the pain of her labor, childbearing. But in verse 15, 
Paul moves beyond the curse. This was so encouraging about verse 15. Childbearing is the flashpoint of woman's distinctiveness in design and in the fall, but now Paul picks up on it for the sake of salvation. Saved through childbearing. He doesn't say saved by childbearing. He doesn't say saved on the basis of childbearing. This is not earning here. It's not salvation by works. This is salvation through or from a danger, a threat, a challenge. This is like 1 Corinthians 3.15. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but as through a fire. So saved through, and the language here is fire. Fire is a threat. It's a danger. It's not the way that they're earning salvation. So Paul's culminating word here to women who are persevering in faith is hope, not despair. Blessing, not cursing. Salvation, not destruction. God sees and he knows the pains of your unwanted singleness, your infertility, your hyperemesis, those arduous hours of childbirth, those postpartum weeks of healing, those months of breastfeeding, those years of child-rearing, the, the lifetime of pains and disappointments and frustrations that you as, as women experience in your female body and soul in this world. He sees and he knows and he wants you to take heart that these present manifestations of the curse will pass away oh so soon. He will save you through them as you keep trusting in him and living according to his calling. So as we come here to the table, the musicians will come. One last detail here from Genesis 3. To get to Genesis 3 and to be so close to it, (laughs) we want to mention it. Uh, The childbearing reference is to Genesis 3.16. This is God's word of curse to the woman in her sphere. But one verse earlier, Paul is talking, or uh, God is talking to the snake, to the serpent. And he says, for the serpent's curse, that the offspring of the woman, another reference to childbirth, the offspring of the woman shall bruise the head of the serpent. In a way that Adam failed, the offspring of the woman will bruise the serpent's head, even as the serpent bruises his heel. So Adam failed to protect his house, but Jesus did not. He is the offspring of the woman, and even as his heel was bruised as he died at the cross, he crushed the head of the devil at that moment. So here at the table, we eat together as men and women. We eat together as God's people, together as co-heirs in Christ, and we are saved together through the pains of our labors, whatever pains those may be, whatever dangers, whatever fires. And thanks to Jesus, We eat together. He's the one mediator between God and man. We would have you eat with us if you would say, Jesus is my Lord. I'm submitted to him. He's my Savior. He's the one who saves me based on faith, not what I do. And he's my treasure. I love him. I embrace my Lord in his goodness and in his design. So the brothers will come. We will bring to you the bread. It's all gluten-free. Retain it. And we'll eat together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.